Bring the white gooseberry wine. Fetch me some rosemary, thyme, beech nuts, and honey, quickly. And now, friends, he squeaked, waving a dandelion wildly with his tail, I, Hugo, will create a grayling a la Redwall, such as will melt in the mouth of mice. Fresh cream. I need lots of fresh cream. Bring some mint leaves, too. The quote I just read does not come from a cookbook or food blog. Nope. It is Straight Out of Redwall by Brian Jakes, a series that was known not only for its cast of lovable animal characters, but also for its luscious food descriptions. This episode has been a long time coming, and I am so excited that we are finally discussing the first book in this series, which was a favorite of mine when I was growing up. Technically, this episode is about the first book in the series, which is also called Redwall and was published in 1986. But we also talk quite broadly about the Redwall universe as a whole. These books are long, with complex plots, so I won't bore you with all the details now. Instead, I'll tell you about some of the things my guests and I talk about over the next hour. We chat about the recent news of Redwall adaptations from Netflix. We compare notes on our favorite characters and try to remember if these books have always had so many pages. We discuss a few memorable moments from Redwall and talk about the ruthlessness of this author. We chat about how every character has a role to play and about how Brian Jakes portrays, quote, women's work. I also share my findings about the author's fascinating backstory. And we talk about things like problematic fantasy tropes and queer coding too. Listeners, our conversation on this episode really covers it all. My guest this week is Namina Forna, a young adult novelist based in Los Angeles and the New York Times and indie best-selling author of the epic fantasy YA novel The Gilded Ones. Originally from Sierra Leone, West Africa, she moved to the U.S. when she was nine and has been traveling back and forth ever since. Namina loves building fantastical worlds and telling stories with fierce female leads. You'll hear a lot about Namina's passion for world building and the influence that books like Redwall had on her writing career, so get excited for that. Follow Namina on Instagram at namina.forna and on Twitter at naminaforna. Follow SSR at SSRPod on Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. You can also join our super fun SSR Book Club group by signing up for free with your email address at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub. SSR Book Club discussions also take place in Slack and on Zoom for those who aren't into Facebook, so please do get involved. This month, the SSRBC is reading Nevermore and the first book in the Gallagher Girl series. Hope to see you there. If you're a big fan of the podcast, I would so appreciate you helping to spread the word. Leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Tell someone in your life that SSR is a must-listen, or take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it and post it to your Instagram story. Don't forget to tag me at SSRPod so I can see. It really does make a difference when listeners like you are out there talking about the pod. It helps more people find the show. And you know what they say, the more the merrier. More is also merrier when it comes to Patreon. For those who don't know, Patreon is a platform that connects independent creators like me with the fans of the things they create. I know I talk about Patreon kind of a lot, and maybe it's a little annoying, but let me just be honest. Making this podcast all on my own is a lot of work. It makes a huge difference to have members of the Patreon community contributing a few dollars every month to help account for that time. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar per month which is 25 cents an episode. Plus, you get lots of fun extras on top of that. Bonus episodes, newsletters, reading recap videos, and so much more. And we have another month of the Patreon-exclusive book club coming up. In November, we will be reading Kelsey McKinney's God Spare the Girls, and I am very excited. I lead this book club myself, and we would love to have you. Learn more and get involved as a patron at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by clicking support at www.ssrpodcast.com. Thanks so much to each and every patron who is listening now. Speaking of listening, let's talk about audiobooks. If you love listening to audiobooks, you've got to check out Libro FM. Libro FM allows you to support independent bookstores instead of giant corporations when you buy audiobooks. The audiobooks you get from Libro FM are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, then use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. I love partnering with Libro FM, and I am so happy that I get to share their work with you here on the podcast every week. Okay, friends, grab that gooseberry wine. 
Are you ready for a journey into Redwall Abbey and Mossflower Woods? Great. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Namina. Welcome to SSR. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I'm thrilled that you're here, listeners. I have to tell you that Namina has a very cute dog nearby, which is perfect because we are talking about a book that is completely populated by adorable creatures. So I feel like it's very fitting that we have a dog who's listening in on our recording today. Yes. I think that my little baby would have not been, well, no, maybe he wouldn't, she wouldn't quite fit into the red world, wall world, but you know. Well, there seems to be room for everyone either within Redwall Abbey or maybe out in Mossflower Wood. There's always space for every creature. So yes, listeners, we're talking about Redwall today. Oh, I was going to say, oh, she could actually live in the barn with the cat, the pescatarian cat. Oh, yes, that would be perfect. See, there's somewhere for everybody to go in this world. I'm so glad we found a place for her in this universe. And I am very excited to have you here today, Namina, to talk about the, what I can only describe as like the epic universe of Redwall, the epic undertaking of this world. I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but there's just like so much in this book, not to mention in this whole series, that I I think we're going to have a broader conversation about Redwall today, more so than about the book itself, which was hefty. Yeah, no, because like, there were how many of these books? Like, there were tons of these books. I read 22. Oh, my God. And I read them all. Like, when I was a kid, I read every single one. And now, yeah. I, I loved that world, Ben. Are you becoming a Netflix movie, right? Yeah, so they just, Netflix has the rights as of, I think, earlier this year. I was reading a couple of articles, which I'll link to in the show notes for this episode. But Netflix has the rights, and they're making both an animated series and a movie. They're producing both at the same time. Oh, my God. Like, I am about to be in heaven when these things come out. Nobody disturbed me for days on end. <laughs> You'll be like, I have my out of office up. I'll let you know when I'm done. <laughs> um, I have like only like one ask of Netflix is like they must include the character of Silent Sam. You know, the little baby squirrel. And he's like always sucking on his thumb and he doesn't talk. And he's just the best. He was a great character. Yeah. Like an excellent character. I also am partial to the stag, Basil Stag hair. Yeah. Who is just like the best comic relief. He is. He is on another level. Like he just he just wants to eat have a good time, and he's like such a good heroic character. Yeah, he is. There's so many good characters in this. So many. So I know you mentioned that you read all of these when you were a kid. I read a lot of them when I was a kid. I don't think I read all of them, but probably close to half. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about like what you remember about them, why you remember loving them. Do you remember them feeling this long? Like I was reading this book and I was like, how did I read this when I was like eight or nine years old? I don't understand. Okay, so, all right. So actual versus memory. So in my in my memory of reading these books, all I remember was that it was full of all these different creatures who each had their own little dialects. There was like the, like the Redwall Abbey and it was just this wonderful magical place where there was always so much good food. Cause like half the book, like if you really look at it, half the time the characters are talking about food and there's like all these great descriptions of food and like heroic little mice. And it was just like, I remember it as just like this sort of warm feeling of like there were adventures. And I remember like, you know, they'd go down the river and there'd be like what the gorilla, the gorilla union of shrews in Mossflower, like yeah. just like things like that. It was, it was such a great series. But 
I did not remember the books being this long. These are hella long books. Hella long books. I mean, I'm 30 years old and I was like, I don't know that I can finish this book. This is so hard. Usually I would be like done with a book in like two hours, maybe three hours max. No, like it took me like five hours to read this book. And the other thing I didn't realize is when I was a kid is like how many ridiculously big words there are. Like now I recognize that I've been censoring myself as a writer because like this man is over here casually adding words like stentorious. What does stentorious mean? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't either. I was just like, okay. Yeah, I mean, he really does give his young readers a lot of credit. I will say that. My memory of reading these books when I was a kid was that, like, I think, I mean, I stumbled on them at the school library. I'd probably read through almost everything else that was, like, maybe more age-appropriate for me. And I loved the animals on the cover. And I really was like, how cool would it be if I read these books? Like, they're so big, and the words are so small, and it would be really awesome if I could read them. And so I, I mean, I did read them, but I, I have this vague memory of like, sort of being aware that I wasn't getting all of it. Like, I feel like I was like, la, 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 I'm just going to keep reading these long books. And I under, you know, I sort of understood the frame of it. You know, I understood that there's this abbey that's filled with mice. The mice are really nice and peaceful and they're at war with these like scarier forces in this book. There's, there's Clooney the rat. Yeah. Clooney the rat is... He's a great villain. He is a good villain. But I, I sort of just understood it in broad strokes. And I, I sort of love that, like, when you're a kid, I mean, at least my experience was that, like, you're not necessarily putting all this pressure on yourself to understand every moment of the book. You're just like, I'm enjoying the experience of reading this book and, like, getting to know this world. And I'll get out of it what I get out of it. Whereas now when I read books, I'm like, if I didn't get this, I have to go back. I need to make sure I understand exactly what's going on. And... I was sort of like, I was longing for that experience of a younger version of myself who just could read these books and not worry so much about it. And but did you notice the other thing is these books are ridiculously violent. Yeah, like, like there is such a high kill count. Like that's the other like, and, and the thing is like, he kills off beloved characters like it's nothing like George oh, yeah. has nothing on this man. And it and it's so strange because it's like, he does it in such a way that you are distressed as a reader, but not enormously so like you don't, I don't even know how to describe it, but he does it in such a way that it's a gentle on the reader uh, when a beloved character passes, but he does kill off a lot of people. I was just like, nobody's safe. Who else is going to die? No one is safe. I mean, there are a lot of deaths on like the villain side on Clooney's side which okay. is you know it's dark but it's satisfying for the reader to a degree but then like almost every beloved character on the side of good like from within Redwall Abbey also dies by the end like all of these wise figures that are acting as mentors to our protagonist Matthias like they all die by the end and I guess this clears the space for Matthias to really rise as the the number one guy in Redwall Abbey, but it's really, it's really sad. Yeah. When you know who died, you know, our beloved person who, I, I'm not going to do any spoilers, but anyway. You're going to, you're committed to no spoilers. I appreciate Sorry, that. Although like, I mean. You can spoil. It's fine. These books like have been Methuselah out. Dies, but like with a name like Methuselah, you knew he was going to die ever. Like, cause literally his name is like, but when he dies, I was just like, whoa, you really did kill him off. You know, like I was I was sort of devastated. I felt some type of way. It's ruthless. Methuselah dies about halfway through. And then the abbot, who is the other sort of like wise figure in Redwall Abbey, dies at the end in like the final moments of the book. And I kept thinking, I was like, he's not going to kill the father abbot. Like the father abbot's going to come through. He's going to make this big dramatic speech you know, saying that Matthias is like in charge now and kind of telling everybody what's up. <laughs> but no, he dies. He in fact dies. And it's super sad. But it, it also like it sets up this epilogue. I'm going to spoil. I don't have a problem spoiling. It sets up this epilogue where Matthias has a baby mouse 
whose name is like Matthias Methuselah Mortimer, Matimeo. Like, of course, we're going to canonize like all of the, all of these heroic dead mice in, in the form of this one small mouse. And that's so much pressure for this little mouse to carry. I know, right? Yeah. And then as like, and there was also a fair dose of like creepiness because Asmodeus. Yeah, the snake. Like just creeping around saying its name is Modius. Modius. Lots of S's. Yes. And then like all the, I tell you like one of the, the parts in the book that really got me is like when Matthias is like trying to find like the owl. Yeah. Like jumps right into a cat's mouth. And oh yeah. Then we cut from there straight back to the Abbey and I'm like, you left us here. Like, and I'm like speeding through the book trying to figure out what happened. Like, is he, what happened? There are a lot of jump cuts in the book. So you talked about how it's really violent. I mean, in addition to being violent, like even when even when we're not killing somebody, it's gory. Like there's battle scenes, there's injuries. We're jumping back and forth between all of these really intense moments. It was sort of hard to keep up. Yeah. Again, even for me as an adult, I wonder how many kids can really follow what's going on. And I'm sure there are many kid readers out there that are much more engaged in, in what they're reading than maybe I was when I was growing up and reading these books. But I really like could not get over how much ground the author covers and how many different like plot points are happening at one time. Yeah. And the strategy, like we're talking about real war strategy. We have yes. Sunni who is like, this like, you know, wartime mastermind who's engineering not just like a straightforward plan, but he's also deceiving a fox. And like, he has all these yeah. sort of like decoys going on. And so as a reader, you have to keep track of not only what he's actually doing, but also what he wants people to think he's doing. It's very confusing. I mean, well, he it, it's, you know, he has like plot A, plot B, plot C. Because yeah. it's like, if you look at it, like, like, and that's, I actually, I really enjoyed this in that mm -hmm. he uses pretty much every character that we see gets their chance to shine. When yes. it's there being killed off by Asmodeus, because, uh, you know, some of them deserved it. That fox, like, I was like, you, you had what was coming to you, sir. Like, you, yeah. But, like, every character sort of has their side quest. Because, like, Basil Stag. Um, him and like Jess the squirrel go off to like you know get the flag and that's like a whole side quest or like when Jess and Silent Sam our fave our favorite the little baby when they discover what to do about the battering ram I'm just like that's my baby he did so good you did so good Silent Sam and the whole time he's like sucking on his thumb you know yes. enjoying yes. the attention yeah, I agree with you. One of my favorite things about this book, and I wrote it several times in the margins, is like everybody gets their moment. And I think what's really cool is that like the author is is giving us this epic story through animals. And of course, like in the animal kingdom, like every animal is a little bit different. Every animal has different capabilities and like different strengths and also different weaknesses. And so I think it made a lot of sense for the author to sort of show that that's how humans should function too by like recognizing that we all have our special gifts we're all not exactly the same in terms of what we can offer but like there's always an opportunity for people to shine if you just like take a second to think about what they're best at and in this world of redwall like every particular species has its own strength and gets to use it in the fight either for good or evil the gorilla union of uh, shrews in moss in moss flower. <laughs> yes, I cannot like them. The sparrows who yep. like what was her name Warbeak or something? Yeah, Warbeak. Very very aggressive little sparrow. They oh, were yeah. But you know what I also liked is that the characters like each could just be without being like stereotypically like and yes there were like some stereotypes according like you know because Matthias is like the young brave warrior and he's a guy and then of course there's like his little love interest cornflower or something like yeah, that who's like, who's like just like helping all around and cooking so there was that but then it's like we saw all these great female heroes like there was the badger who was just Constance. like yeah, Constance the Badger like was just like uh, I will defend this wall, and it was just the strongest, and that was amazing. Jess and the Sparrow like Warby like I loved that like everybody could 
have different role roles and it wasn't just sort of constrained to, to gender because like here was Jasmine, you know she's a married woman and she has a kid and yet she's like doing all these daring rescues i just thought that was fabulous like because i you never really see that like the mom character sort of being a badass and like a child and like going off and doing her thing and her husband being like i love you baby like i'll be waiting i firmly believe in you you know it's sort of it's really cool yeah, I agree. I thought that there were a handful of like really badass female characters in this book that were a lot of fun to read. I do want to note that I found um, one article in Book Riot that a few people actually sent to me as well when I posted that we were going to be covering Redwall on the show. Um, and I will include a link to this in the show notes, but it's called Brian Jakes's Redwall and the Damaging Tropes of Epic Fantasy. It was written earlier this year. Of course, when the announcement came out about the Netflix show, um, there's a whole slew of, of new coverage about the series. And the author of this particular essay talks about how she had really high hopes for the book Mariel of Redwall, which I guess has maybe a female character on the cover. Mm -hmm. And she was like, great, like now, you know, there have been these great characters, girl characters in the other books, but now a female character is really going to take the lead. And I guess, and I haven't read this book, so I, I don't know myself, but according to this essay in that book, the leading lady character, Mariella Fredwell, actually doesn't kind of win the day. Like, let me try to find the quote. This is what she writes. She says, part of what made me start to fall out of love with the series was my frustration at what the girl characters didn't get to do. I remember being so excited when Mariella Redwall came out, the first of the books I bought in hardcover, because she looked like a proper badass lady from the outset. I was then intensely disappointed when Marielle wasn't entrusted with Martin Sword and it went to one of the male mouse characters. So I thought that was interesting. Like, again, I haven't read this book, but I'm reading this first installment in the series and seeing, yeah, like these really cool characters like Constance and Jess and Warbeak, like they're contributing to the cause, they're showing their strengths, they're being really powerful. But I think it is worth noting that like in the one book that was really meant to put a female character in the spotlight. Yeah, they're not, they're not, the, male, they're not the male lead. Yeah, she still doesn't get the same like, I don't know, heroic ending as a Matthias in Redwall does. And like, I actually don't remember that book. Yeah. Uh, but what I will say is that I did keep looking at the character of Constance and being like, mm, I appreciate this book for the fact that like in this particular book that like, pretty much everybody sort of gets to be who they are and what they want to be i can't remember mario so i don't know but like that would probably be true that's probably yeah yeah and i guess it's it's complicated too because it's like we have to of course as readers in 2021 applaud mm -hmm. the fact that this is a book written in 1986, a fantasy book written in 1986. And at that time, like most fantasy books were really dominated by male characters. Yeah. And while, of course, Matthias is the star of this one, we're able to spend a lot of time talking about a wide range of different kinds of characters that represent different species and different genders. And they're all like conquering their own fears and doing incredible feats of strength. But at the same time, like given the opportunity to put a, a female mouse as the star like she doesn't quite get like yeah. the same but it's I think this is you come to expect this in books from this era and it's it's a hard thing to talk about but I I just really appreciated this essay and I wanted I wanted to share it yeah I think that's the thing about like a lot of fantasy in general like that's one of the reasons why I became a writer is because typically when you have a female character in fantasy she sort of pushed pushed off to the back and she like serves the main character like you know either with food or like with just being you know a kind person for him to in some way earn and that definitely felt like that with the character of cornflower um and every time i like as and as i was reading this book uh, i kept looking at her and being like mm. but then there were all these other female female characters that sort of like were able to just be themselves. And I just, I really dug that. So I was like, I felt that, but yeah. Yeah, and I actually, I really appreciate that point about Cornflower because I think it's so easy, 
especially in, in 2021, to look at a character like Cornflower, who to your point, like her real, like only purpose in this book, as we see it is to like, she is serving food. She's like looking out for Matthias. She's waiting for him to come home. She's really fulfilling a lot of these stereotypical roles that we see women stepping up to do. But I think what I always want to make clear on the podcast is that it's not about saying that like, Mm -hmm. female characters shouldn't do those things if that's what they want to do. Like those are really important and beautiful things to do. And that's hard work. Like it's really hard work to have that pressure on you to take care of others and to literally be keeping like an army alive by feeding them like, oh, no, and just by feeding like just feeding Basil's dad. Oh, I mean, yeah, he had a big appetite. (laughs) And I think that's the other thing was that, like, I kept sort of gut checking with myself on that because Mm -hmm. I think that women's labor is so very easily discounted or quote unquote women's labor. But the fact of the matter is, if you took out cornflour, how were the rest of them like going to survive the siege? You know what I mean? Because yeah. she was the one arranging the, like, between her and Abbot, um, the friar, they were the two ones that were arranging the food and literally keeping people alive. So arguably, they do have some of the most important functions in the book. But I think that we so often, like, women's labor is lessened. It's, like, not, quote, unquote, as exciting as, like, Matthias, you know, going off and getting kidnapped by sparrows to, like, find the sword and all these things. But, like... Yeah, it was just a, it was an interesting thing that I sort of sat with as I was reading. Yeah, and I think what's important is that Brian Jakes presents us with a range of options for these female characters. And so I think that I really appreciate that, like this representation of all of these different characters. It's much different than reading a book that was written in like 1940, in which all of the female characters do nothing but cook and clean. Yeah, and we put the man. Right, exactly. And so I think what's great about this book is that to your point, the author is sort of like putting this kind of quote women's work on a pedestal and showing us that like, this is survival without a character like Cornflower, these soldiers are not eating. And at the same time, if you don't want to fulfill that kind of again, like quote, traditional women's work, like go out and be constant and like be the strongest yeah. person in, in your, on your team. She was literally tossing people like it was no thing. But also, really, to quickly circle back, the other thing is, like, this book is so concerned with food. Yes. I think that's, like, that's what I, one of the things that I love most about these books is, like, they have these really long, drawn-out sort of descriptions about what their people are eating and drinking. And sometimes I think about, like, would I actually enjoy those things in real life, you know? But they all sound so good. They sound so good. And I did have a handful of people send me messages on Instagram when I posted a picture of the book and they were like, oh my gosh, the food. Like I remember the food scenes. It's true. Like I feel like nobody really writes food like this. Like Brian Jake, it's very special. Yeah. His his command of just like, that's what I remember. And I'm like, I would like to be an author who writes about food in such a way. Like just descriptions. Yeah. It's really memorable. And I'll link, I found an article on Electric Lit that's called The Seven Best Feasts from the Redwall Books. And they actually break down like seven especially delicious sounding meals. And I love this line from that piece. It says, Jake's made food a character in these books, as well as a ritual of familiarity or comfort or victory. As much as you expected heroic mice and a tale of adventure, you also expected feasts, especially to celebrate the triumph of good. Which is, I think, so true. Like, food does almost feel like another character, like the one millionth character in this book. Can I just confess, by the way, I never knew how to pronounce his name. So, like, you're like, you know, like, it's literally, I was reading it. Like, when I first read it, I was like, either it's going to be like some English person is going to be like Brian Jacquees, but no, it's um, Brian Jacques. And then yeah. I was just like, but how how do we pronounce it? So it's Brian Jake. Yeah, I mean, I have to confess that I didn't know until I stumbled upon his obituary in the New York Times, in which they actually have in parentheses pronounced Jake's. Because I was nervous getting ready to record. I was like, I don't know. I, I was going to say Jacques. I like I thought we were just going to like butcher it. Like, because I was like, I came prepared to just... <laughs> Like I wanted to give my unfiltered whatever. So this was going to be a discussion of like, how do we pronounce this man's names? He, he's he's written 
so many books that we loved, but like Jacques, <laughs> Jake's, it's Jake's. Who knew? Who knew? I mean, the New York Times knew. They came in and they they told us. They told us how to say it. Interestingly, um, the last book in the series was actually published a few months after he passed away. So the 22nd Redwall book was published, I believe, in May of 2011. And he passed away in February of 2011. So that's kind of cool that they made that happen. He was actually a really interesting guy. Do you know anything about him and his history? No, I don't. So he has a really interesting background. So he didn't actually start writing until he was like in the middle age period of his life. I don't know exactly how old he was. But before he started writing, he worked as a longshoreman, a long haul trucker, a merchant mariner, a railway fireman, a boxer and a bus driver. So he wore many hats. God. I know. Very busy man. And then he ultimately took a job driving a milk truck in Liverpool. I didn't know that that was a thing even in the 80s in Liverpool, but it was. Mm -hmm. And one of the destinations on his route was the Royal School for the Blind. And one day the teachers at the Royal School for the Blind invited him in for tea, as I guess one does in Liverpool. Mm -hmm. And they asked him if he would like to read to the students at the school. And he agreed. And that was something that he started to do every once in a while when he like had time on his route when he could take a break from driving. And after a while, he realized that he was really unhappy with the books that were available to read to the kids. He felt that they were like really angsty and just kind of negative. And so he vowed to himself that he would write his own. And he wrote what he called a quote, proper story that was full of battle and gallantry. Oh, well, I mean, that makes sense. Like that because the thing about it, it, he seems like a very sort of masculine type man, like with all the stuff that he's done, which sort of makes sense. Like when you think about characters like Stag, Basil Stag, who's like yeah. a military man, like he's a military hare of the 42nd something, something like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And he also, I found a quote from him where he talks about how like he had a lot of trouble kind of wrapping his mind around becoming a famous author. He said, I still have a working class ethic. I get up in the morning and I still feel guilty about being a famous author. And he said that in 2001 when he's like, you know, already a best-selling author. His books have sold over 20 million copies in more than 20 countries. And he still is like, I don't know, I maybe was more comfortable driving the milk truck. That's sweet of him. Yeah. Kind of an interesting guy. I'm just like... I, I hear you, but like, bruh, like, Take I it and run. <laughs> like, I would prefer to stay at home and write any day, like yeah. any day. But yeah. again, you know, like, I'm a homebody. You could not drag me out. <laughs> yeah, you're like, don't, I don't need to be on the track. I'm fine at home. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm just like, overdrive. Like, that was what stuck with me over like, overdriving, really. <laughs> but okay, so here's the thing. I hate to drive. I really despise it. I think driving is a scam, actually. I do. Really? Tell me more. I think driving is a scam because like, people are like, oh, you get, you know, you're 16 and then you get your license and you can like go places and do things. But like, oh, yeah, that's great. But then you like get stuck in traffic and you like get lost and you have to deal with like gas and all these things. I'm like, nah, bro. Why? Like, I just, it is a scam. It is like it's not enjoyable. It does add a lot of complication. It makes life very complex. Yeah, it's not enjoy. Like what it is is like people are like driving is supposed to be a great um, adventure and it's supposed to be fun. And this is my neurosis kicking in. I'm like, no, it's not fun. It's stressful. It is very stressful. It. I mean, when you really think about it, it is stressful. And I actually enjoy like the act of driving. But when I really think about like the number of sort of threats that you invite into your life when you are on the road, it is kind of wild. I have a very clear memory when I started driving of my mom saying to me, like, I've spent the last 16 years trying to protect you. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, just saying, you know, go forth and like, throw yourself in front of all of these things that I have tried to protect you from. And she's like, and I'm supposed to be okay with it. And like, be exactly. excited about it. I don't think I can do that. Exactly. So like, the long and short of it is I'm a nervous driver. I don't enjoy it. I think it's a scam. So I literally cannot understand, you know, well, each to his own. And in the spirit of Redwall, each to his own. Yes. Yeah. In the spirit of Redwall, I agree with that. So I'm curious because you mentioned that you read these books so much when you were a kid and now you've had a chance to revisit the first installment in the series. Did you sort of 
find anything in your experience coming to this as an adult that made you think like, oh, I wonder if this is a thing that like stuck with me in my writing now? Like, did you recognize anything that sort of inspires you in your work today? Oh, definitely. So, well, not in my young adult work, but like the things that I took from him in Mm -hmm. particular was just his care and how he crafted like each animal culture. Cause like, that's one of the most fascinating things about Redwall is that each type of animal has their own specific culture, right? So it's like, if you think about it, okay, there's the mice, there's the mice of Redwall Abbey who are basically like monks and they're all peaceful or whatever. But then you have like the, um, the moles and they speak in a completely different dialect or, you know, and there's the foreman and da, da, da. And, or if you think about like, the foxes who are playing people against each other or like the sparrows who again have a completely different dialect and that's what i really enjoyed was that like there were all these details that that added up to being like a culture that was different for each group of animal and that's like something that I am trying to like use in my work like especially in my middle grade work of just sort of this care of like how like people speak and what are the different patterns and because all of these things build up to a world. Yeah, his world building is really just so impressive. And I think to your point, like it is, it's amazing that he took this sort of the same amount of care in developing each one of these mm-hmm. animal subcultures and each one feels like it's like he cared as much about the foxes as he did about the mice, as he did about the sparrows, as he did even about the rats who are our like number one yes. villains. Yes. Um, and that's just, I really respect that as both a reader and a writer. Cause I mean, if you, if you think about it, even going down to the names, right? Like what are the rats names, right? You have Clooney, who's like the only one who has like that name, but the rest of them, it's like Bloodtooth and Scrag and like, you know, just these little sort of villainous names versus like the mice are like Methuselah and Matthias and like, you know, all of these like, and then like, you'll have like maybe a cornflower or whatever. But for the most part, all the mice's names are consistently quote-unquote human and then you have characters like basil the hare yeah we love basil the hare we love basil the hare so much i think that 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 point about the rats and their names actually is a really great segue into another thing that i was hoping to ask you about which i also pulled out of that piece in book riot where there's some conversation about just kind of how redwall leans into some like really great tropes of fantasy and also some that this particular author of the essay isn't especially sure about. And um, something that she wrote about is this idea that like some species in this world are inherently bad, no matter what. Foxes, weasels, stoats, which that was, I also had that, yeah. Yeah, she says the first several books of the Redwall series also made me notice another trope that was a staple of the epic fantasy I grew up with. Some kinds of people, be they orcs or weasels, are just always evil. It started really bugging me in Redwall because I happened to like foxes and wildcats and it felt very unfair, particularly because it wasn't the biological realities of what foxes and wildcats eat that dictated their villainy in Brian Jakes's books. So I just, I would love to have you weigh in on that. I loved fantasy when I was a kid. I don't read as much fantasy now. And I honestly haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this, but the way this author lays it out in the essay really like gave me some food for thought. No, they're completely correct. And that is actually another thing that has sort of informed my work, again, in the middle grade space, is that I try to ensure like his, especially if I'm writing a world where it's based on like different animals or whatever mm-hmm. if the animal is considered villainous like to like i guess by human standards i try to ensure that like yeah they might still have those things of being that but they're not inherently bad one of the things that i try to do in my work is to sort of acknowledge that, that every creature is part of an ecosystem, right? And even if they're doing quote unquote, like evil things to our heroes, we have to acknowledge that no, they're just fulfilling their part in the ecosystem. It's nothing personal. It just is what it is, you know? And that's not in and of itself evil. Like if you like say, if it's a book with fish and sharks, if the sharks are eating the fish, it's not because the sharks are evil. They are just 
doing what is necessary for the balance of life to continue. And that's something that I've had and I've thought of for a while, especially because I've read so many books like this, where it's like, oh, if you're a fox, if you're a weasel, if you're a stoat, you're already evil, which is not the case. Yeah, because and I really appreciate that, that you explained how you look at it as a writer, because that makes a lot of sense. And in this book, like we ultimately do see like, why the rats, for example, are evil, because they do evil things. But when we meet the rats up front, we're just, it's just the sense of like, oh, they're evil because they're rats. Yeah. And I can see how when that trope is like transferred into a fantasy book or a book from another genre that, that casts this sort of battle among humans, that becomes very problematic and dangerous in the way that we think about different groups of people as automatically good or bad before we've actually seen them do a bad thing. Yeah. No, basically it's like in these books, there's a whole category of vermin, right? Yeah. Which is a word that I love, vermin. Like it's I just, love that word. It's just sort of so slinky, like, look at all these vermin. It sounds like what it is, too. Yeah. I use that word, too. I don't know why I agree with you. Like, it just it's kind of a funny and fun word to say. And it matches what it describes for the most part, I think. Yeah, but like, so all of these creatures are automatically vermin. And there's like there's no sort of redeeming them of their verminish qualities. Like we see some creatures get redeemed, like, you know, Warbeak the Sparrow, because like, you know, she started off as just being really aggressive, but you know, she was just a teenager and like stupid. Right. And we see the difference between her and her mother, you know? But the other thing that I I also found interesting and sort of like this the idea of good versus evil is the treatment of madness in this book because there are certain characters who are considered quote unquote mad and like there is this there's this thing like immediately if you're mad you're bad so like Clooney who like is not mad but pretends to be mad plays to this and then we have you know the King Sparrow who is almost certainly mad but like is also very devious, you know? So it's like the madness and the deviousness seem to go hand in hand. And I found that very interesting and slightly uncomfortable that it was like, it was like sort of a one-to-one in these books. Yeah, I think that that's true. As I'm thinking about the moments in the book where we're talking about like the characters that are mad, I, maybe Basil is the one exception because I do yeah. feel like the author at first, like it's sort of unclear if he has it all together or not. And he he doesn't like he's he's a little like out to lunch at all times, but he's yeah. good. Like he's yeah. always there to help and he's funny. Yeah. Basil, because I didn't I didn't read like, I think, like, for me, honestly, can I be 100%? I just saw Basil as, like, the gay hair. Who yeah. Confirmed, like, because I almost feel like, like, I because he's a confirmed bachelor. He leaves yeah. in sort of a way. He comes in every once in a while to enjoy the food. And, he's, and he dances to the beat of his own drum. Yeah, I can see how maybe the author was, like, trying to get at that without yeah. quite naming it. Yeah, because like, honestly, like, I feel like there were some characters that if you take a step back, you could see them as queer, like Basil was one Constance, the badger mm -hmm. was another one. Yeah. Um, so, and she was very straightforward and straight to the, so I don't know, man. Yeah, but I think what we can say is that the author is giving us like a wide range in yeah. terms of the way that he's characterizing these characters in um, sort of all metrics, which it makes it makes for a really fun reading experience. And I think as adults allows us to look at his writing and like appreciate his willingness to like play with character and diversify who he was working with. Yeah. One other thing that I found was sort of interesting that I didn't realize, and I guess it just speaks to the fact that I really had no idea what I was doing while I was reading this, these books as a kid, is that the characters for the most part don't actually like reappear from book to book. I think Martin the Warrior is like the main exception to this. Like he comes back. He's like the thread that runs through them. Yeah. Yeah, but they're not, they were not written in chronological order. And there are very few recurring characters, which I just thought was sort of an interesting note because again, like as a kid, I have this clear memory of like the whole world just making sense to me, even if it yeah. wasn't the, the characters didn't need to stick around. The events didn't need to make sense, but it was like, oh yeah, it's like one book to the, to the next. It totally tracks. The way that I saw it was, because like, I'm not clear on this, like, 
But like sort of the way that I saw it, it was that we were seeing several iterations of, or rather several generations that lived in Redwall Abbey. So it's like every book we sort of drop down and that's like the constant, but it doesn't constantly always have to be the main location, but it's always sort of there. That's like the, it's, it felt like the linchpin. Is that the word that holds things together? Does the linchpin hold things together? It's the other question. Sure. We'll say that it does for the purposes of this conversation. But yes, I think you're right. It's like this universe is the backdrop and it's almost like Brian Jake's just kind of waited to see like what stories inspired him within that backdrop and just wrote what felt right from one book to the next. So um, it did kind of make me curious what some of the other books are like. And maybe maybe someday I'll revisit this series, but they're long. Listeners don't expect another Redwall book for a while because this was an undertaking but Namina I'd love to know kind of on the whole if rereading this book as an adult um held up to your memory of it when you were a kid or did it let you down oh actually I I I found it even better than what I remembered like honestly I was again awed by his skill as a writer because like he has such a way with descriptions but also like his use of third person it's quite it's sublime actually because it's it's often third person omniscient and he'll like dip down like it's interesting like even in the first page he like dips down into like three or four different characters in the space of a couple of paragraphs into their heads and i'm like that is actually skill to weave so easily in and out of like from one point of view to the next even in the same chapter even in the same section is actually I'm in awe of that. And not only, but, and and then of course there's the descriptions, not only of the food, but like, I remember there's one point where he talks about like um, the hair um, slipping in silently as, you know, the shadow of a cloud. And I'm like, who thinks I'm going to steal that description, by the way, (laughs) that description, but like, who thinks of that? You know, it's, it, 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 again, reinforced why I read so many of these books was because, I felt like I was held in the hands of a master and I was. Yeah, he's very talented. And when you realize that he didn't even start writing until he was probably in his like 40s or 50s, it's even more impressive. Like this wasn't a craft that he was working on full time until he was in the middle of his life. So I'm happy that he did eventually start writing and that we got a chance to peek into this world because it is, it's just no matter whether you love fantasy, don't like fantasy, whether you like reading about animals or don't like reading about animals, it's impossible to deny the talent that this author has. And just like the, again, the massive undertaking that he had on his hands with Redwall. So I agree. It was like really interesting to come back to it and just like admire the scope of the world and think about like how I would have interpreted this when I was reading it when I was eight or nine years old. It's kind of funny to think about actually. Because, I mean, you don't see all these things. And now I'm like, wait a second. There's so much. Like, that's a master world builder. Yeah. You know, even, like, I'll talk again about the pescatarian cat. He's like, (laughs) the cat said, I'm no longer eating red meat. I prefer to stick to grasses and the occasional fish. Yeah, the cat was great. I, I hope that in my in our little fantasy world in which your dog is hanging out with the cat, like I hope that they get along and have a good time. Yeah, the the cat was like no, because I feel like the cat would be upset by my dog because she'd be like, "You are just beneath me." Because the cat isn't Julian is an aristocrat. Yeah, an aristocrat cat basically. Yeah, and I think like my my dog is maybe a little bit more mongrelly, and Julian would have would have objections. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that would be a good story all on its own. Um, Other than Redwall, Namina, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? It doesn't have to be YA. It can be. It can be middle grade, whatever you've just really been enjoying. Um, So right now I'm reading Beasts of Prey by Ayanna Gray. It comes out in like two weeks or so. It is an amazing book. It's so full of action and adventure. It's so well written. I really uh, tremendously enjoy it. I also enjoy Ace of Spades. Um, That's already out. Um, That's another YA. It's basically uh, if Gossip Girl met Get Out, um, it's also really good. I love the Ray Bear series by Jordan Afueco. Uh, Redemptor, the second book in the series just came out. Like Jordan Afueco is one of my favorite authors. Like her work is just pristine and I'm always in awe of her. Uh, So I love that. Um, And then, of course, The Black Kids by Christina Hammonds-Reed, which I always, always enjoy. 
And then Skin of the Sea uh, by Tasha Bowen, that should come out in November. That I am so excited for everyone to read because it's it's basically like it's set during the the Middle Passage and it's what would happen if um, mermaids were tasked to take the souls of enslaved people who like fell or jumped aboard during the Middle Passage and then what happens when one mermaid takes a live boy. So that's really, really good. And another book that I really love um, that just came out is Bad Witch Burning. And that book uh, was really beautifully done. And I would highly recommend everyone read that. Thank you for all those recommendations. Lots of really good ones on that list. We've been lucky enough to have a few of the authors of those books on the show over the last couple of months. So um, I'll be sure to give those extra shout outs in the show notes for this episode. And Namina, we also have to talk about your book. I know recently you had the Gilded Ones come out. Um, I'd love if you could share a little bit more about it and anything else that you're working on or want to talk about. Awesome. Um, So my book, The Gilded Ones, it's a young adult fantasy. It's set in a super patriarchal world where there's a group of women who are considered demons because they're faster and stronger than regular people and they bleed gold. Then actual demons come into this world and the humans give these girls a choice, fight or die. My main character decides to fight and in doing so goes on like this adventure that changes her life and the life of like so many other people around her. Um, The way that I like to sort of describe this book is it's like, it's a female 300 or like it's basically if like the Amazons from Wonder Woman were in the world of the um, Handmaid's Tale and said, let's burn everything to the ground. So lots of action magic, suspense, all of that. Oh, that's so cool. And congratulations on it being out in the world. It sounds amazing. I'm so happy for you. And listeners, we're actually going to be giving away a few copies of The Gilded Ones over on SSR's Instagram. So if you're listening to this episode the week it comes out, be sure to go check that out because I'm sure you are going to want to get a copy in your hands. And if you don't win the giveaway, you should still go get yourself a copy wherever books are sold, preferably at an independent bookstore. I'll be sure to link to it in the show notes for this episode. Namina, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed myself. I really enjoyed talking about rep. And now I know that it's Brian Jakes. Jakes. Now we've learned. And now when the Netflix series and the movie comes out, when we talk about it, we'll sound like we really know what we're talking about because we can be like, oh yeah, that's written by Brian Jakes. And that's the correct pronunciation. Yes, we can be very fancy now. Yes, we will have to touch base after we both watch the series and discuss. And when you decide to completely binge it and sit in your house and with the shades drawn and watch the whole thing, I hope it's everything you dream it will be. Yes, follow up. Follow <laughs> yes, up. <laughs> follow up episode. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.